0: Cecilia, I was thinking of something you said at the beginning when you said that well, you said your grandparents died without knowing they were Indians, and that your mother only knew very late when you did a DNA test. And I'm I'm, I'm trying to understand what that means in relation to your own life and art and how you've made it and how you've conceived of it. I'm, I'm just wondering how one builds um, links or builds projections or futures out of a history of uh, forgetting. I mean, I think your first, one of your first works was called The Kipu That Remembers Nothing. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could um, reflect back on that. Where did that work and title come from? Mm. and what does the kipu that remembers nothing build?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think um, first of all uh, there is a very strange uh, identification that I did against everything that my family believed uh, that uh, I became aware that I was an Indian when I was a little girl and I, I, think I became aware of that, and that is really the source of my my work. Come to think of it now that I'm old, you know, and in the sense that, for example, uh, most of my, I think, uh, uh, be- my mother was the only Indian in the family, and therefore, uh, when I was with my other cousins, most of my cousins would be white. They would have green eyes. Some of them would be blonde, and so. They were always celebrated, oh, how beautiful, my baby. And I never, ever received that uh, sort of report. And a baby notices, you see. Babies know exactly what people are thinking about them. It's just very extraordinary. Babies are telepathic. So then when my little brother was born, he was celebrated even though he was dark, but it was because he was a boy, you see so soon enough among the many books my father uh, gave me a present of a little book i still remember that was called the little schemo and my father started to call me the little schemo because of course i had my eyes don't go like this if now that i'm old you can't really see but you see the shape of my eyes go like this that's indian stuff you see then my eyes have a certain shape then i have the drooping so i have all the genetic markers can you believe that the little girl looked at the picture of the little schemo and decided that's me? (laughs) (laughs) So it was in books that then, and when we started to go to the cinema, then we were brought out of the countryside and brought to Santiago when I was like eight or nine. So we had access to to cinema, to, to cowboy movies. I look at the first cowboy, I knew I was on the other side, you see. Mm. So that was the main thing. And so the idea of despojo, how could you say despojo in, in English? Despojo is to take away, to remove from you violently, you know. And so I became aware as, as a young teenager, because I read everything, uh, that this uh, universe had been removed from us. And there's a picture where I am nine years old and I'm wearing feathers. And why was I doing that? Because I had started the first rebellion in my neighborhood, (laughs) telling the other kids that we should be Indians because Indians go about free in the wilderness, go in the mountains and are not enslaved in the school sitting down hearing rubbish. All day long, so that idea of rebellion in me—it was a physical rebellion related to having been brought from the from the wilderness into the city, related to being trapped in the mind frame mind frame of teachers who were usually far dumber than the children, you know. And so, um, by the time I was uh, an older teenager, meaning 14, around for between 12 and 14 and 15. I was very drawn to the home of one of my aunts, who was a wonderful sculptor, her name is Rosa Vicuna, and it is in her library that I began seeing pre Columbian art. Pre Columbian art was the most ignored, denied, non existent uh, entity in Chilean culture in the 50s and 60s. There was Nothing, you couldn't see it. Uh, There was one museum, which was the Natural History Museum, where among the objects you could have, you know, a few little archeological things, but truly it was no value. But my aunt, she thought this was great art and she had the books. And somehow this, I'm, I'm sort of recreating a possibility because I don't remember the exact moment, of course, but it's the only possibility That this could have happened in the manner that I will describe now, which is that I'm looking at her books and I suddenly see a picture of a kipu, and I'm immediately drawn into that because very early in my notebooks there is a note and the note I have kept is is from my notebooks and it says El Kipu que no recuerda nada. Mm? And so The Kipu that remembers nothing. So it was already there in that time. (coughs) This must have been in in the, let's say, late 60s. Uh, Let's say between 65 and 68, more or less. And so what I remember about that work is that once I understood that the knowledge kept in the kippus had been removed from us The same rebellion that I experienced at nine years old in the schools by being removed from the freedom of your body and the freedom of play and the freedom of being in the wilderness, uh, I felt the same with the kippu. So this visceral connectivity to whatever was happening in those knots really ruled my life from that moment forward. (coughs) I didn't realize it (coughs) immediately. Perhaps
0: you could say a word about what quipus are?
1: Yes. So quipu in Quechua means knot. And what it is, it is a system of record keeping, which is, uh, I will make a quipu here for you, whereby a knot is constructed in the following manner. A thread sort of turns on itself.
0: Can you describe
1: mm-hmm. it for people who don't have the image? Well, there is a scholar. Her name is Marsha Asher, and uh, and her brother Asher, uh, too, Robert Asher. They wrote a book in the 80s that really enlightened me about the kipu. And what they, what they say is that the kipu must have begun uh, from the female imagination uh, because the kipu is very much like, a, like, like the the experience of the fetus that is holding, uh, hanging from, from an umbilical cord, you know. She doesn't say it that way. She, she just um, writes half a phrase. But that half a phrase enlightened me to understand that the kipu must have been born by exactly the the. the 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 idea that I just described: a thread turns on itself and makes a knot. So that knot becomes a sort of a depository of information. Becomes uh, you say depository. You see, mm-hmm. and so for example, even people sometimes say, take a handkerchief and make a knot to remind themselves of something. So it must have started in that way in that uh, sense of keeping the memory of something and from there during the course of 5000 years the quipu became the record keeping system of the Andes and they run the huge Inca uh, universe that of course in western parlance is called the Inca Empire, even though it wasn't a regular empire in the sense that the Roman Empire was an empire. It was more like a collectivity. Um, But this collectivity went all the way from Ecuador to the south of Chile and the north of Argentina, so it involved a territory far larger than the Roman Empire and any other known conglomerate of like an organization of peoples. And uh, so the Kipu uh, ended up in its incredible mathematical elaboration and as a container of information became as elaborate and as capable of transmitting information as the Phoenician alphabet, which we still use now in the West. So, because of the, the permutations that are possible within the structure of the knots are equal in number to the permutations that the alphabet uh, can provide. Uh, your, your kipu
0: in installation are remarkable to see. I, I believe I saw that most recently at the Brooklyn Art Museum. These You feel like you're, you're just living in these loose ropes of meaning and connection. And I know that in one of your videos where you compare Glacier melting. To um, a, a you mark it with with red with red, um, like a red rope. And can you talk a little bit about that connection between the glaciers and the and your your use?
1: Yeah, I cannot trace how I became aware of this, but uh, I know that uh, water and blood uh, have uh, become a symbol of each other, in the Andes, forever. Mm -hmm. At some point I became aware of that, and so um, it's something that if you research it, it's probably true in most cultures that that the, the ability to survive our blood and the consistency of our blood is related to water, to our drinking of water and our care for water. So when I understood that blood and water were one, uh, that also unleashed a whole new uh, uh, understanding. It was an ancient understanding that had come to me and um, I didn't create it. I just became like a sort of, of how can I say, my art became a continuation, from my perspective, of a way of thinking that had been interrupted by colonization. So, um, I don't imagine things as people would imagine them in the past, but I imagine them as they can be in the future. If we use the memory of something that has been erased, forgotten, distorted, as our launching board, you know. so. Since we cannot really tell exactly how this universe was, we have a lot of room for 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 creating what uh, this could be. And the first time I I, I connected this in in a, in a in a political way was in two thousand and six. In two thousand and six, uh, the first uh, uh, woman president uh, was being elected, and I couldn't vote because. Uh, up to that moment uh, many people like myself uh, had lost the right to vote because the dictatorship had burned the the registry where your name would be Mm -hmm. so because i couldn't vote on the day of election which was january 2006 and i definitely wanted for this socialist woman michelle Bachelet to win i decided to go up to the glacier that feeds the city of santiago and it so happens that in that glacier a little child was buried alive during Inca times as a sacrificial uh, gesture for life uh, to continue. And the child was buried alive at the birth of the Río Mapocho. And this story I had known all my life because when the boy was again extracted from his sacred altar at the top of the glacier, he was brought in and sold to the Natural History Museum where he was exhibited as an object. And I was brought along with the other kids to see this child that had been converted into an object. But what happened to me, I was exactly the size of this child, I was exactly the age of this child. And I was at this, you know, in front of the the glass, because the the child was behind glass in a vitrine. And when I was close to this child, something happened to me that I knew I was going to be like a mummy like him. Like I, it, it was like an experience of time travel occurred where I could experience both the past and the future bah, in one blow. And that I think transmitted to me a lot of, of emotional, uh, visceral understanding, which I still I'm uh, unfolding that, you know, because I go back to this scene, to this moment. So around that time, just before uh, this election, I had become aware that a scholar had written, uh, an anthropologist had written about uh, what the child had in his hand. And the child had in his hand a red thread. And when I saw that, I understood my own relation to the red thread that had run my throughout my life because I began painting a red thread in 1969. Then I began performing with a red thread. And so <coughs> what was it that uh, made the symbol of the red thread so powerful for the child to have it in his hand? And he was buried at the birth of the river. So my interpretation is that the force of menstruation and the force of the glacier had become one. And when you prayed for water, you prayed from the perspective and the wisdom of menstruation itself, so that menstruation and the flow of water were one in our bodies as humans and in the body of the land, you know? And so I, that's when I did this performance of putting red thread at the birth of the Rio mm. Mapocho. Thank <smart noise> you.